cliffcentral.com. All right, so the burning platform is brought to you by Nando's. It's your opportunity to catch up on all the important information. And we're going to be joined by our special guest this morning, Dr. Dabiseng Muleko, who is a senior lecturer in managerial economics at the University of Stellenbosch's business school. That's USB. And we're going to talk a little bit about developmental economics. We'll also talk about what she thinks we need to do as a country to get ahead, which I, I think is probably the most interesting thing uh, we could discuss this morning. So we'll get to Dr. Ntabi Singh in just a minute. Also, if you have any ideas of what you'd like to talk about this morning, we always have a, a, a good, solid agenda. But I would like to know what you think and what you'd love us to discuss. So. Pass those that, that information on as quickly as you can. All right, uh, Pumi's here and Sia is here, and we're just waiting for Dr. Ntabi Singh to log on. We have had one or two internet issues this morning. I don't know what's happening. If, if anybody is aware of maybe some, it's usually, it used to always be some kind of cable that was disconnecting somewhere because I've had great internet for the last eight weeks, and then suddenly this is happening for the last two days. I don't know what's going on. All right, uh, let's start off with the obvious thing, and Pumi and I made a brief um, reference to this earlier. It's something that Pumi's always on top of, and uh, we were talking about what's going on at the State Capture Commission. So what I saw when Pravin Gordon and um, Dalimpofu were arguing on Tuesday night was really two sides of, of an argument. Uh, one is v- very much against the idea of the state being captured by bad influences, in this case, Tom Moyane, and being perverted for the use of, you know, bad political actors in order to enrich themselves. And that was certainly what Pravin Gordon, if you asked him for his opinion, what he probably thinks of the whole state capture arrangement. If you listen to what Dalimpofu had to say, he had a totally different take. He was like, well, we're bad, but you're also bad. And therefore, and therefore, we aren't so bad. Now, a lot of people have commented that this isn't exactly a defence. It's more of a, it's more of an, an admission of guilt. But then, uh, saying, well, our guy might be, uh, you know, captured. But then, so are you, Provin Gordon. And you're you're not exactly the best example of a good and pure and and decent human being either. So it got very ugly. It got very personal with uh, Dalimpofu and with um, with uh, with Pravin Gordon and lawyers on both sides got involved. But I think we're missing the point here is that this is now about stuff that has already happened. What we've got going on at the moment is probably a little more interesting because it seems Ace and Cyril are squaring off against each other more and more often in the ANC's NEC, and that's not something we've ignored on the burning platform either. Let me welcome to the conversation Dr. Ndabiseng Muleko. It's a great pleasure to see you, Dr. Ndabiseng. It's, uh, it's nice to have you on screen with us this morning. How are things going? No, no, very well. Very good morning to everyone who's here. I had a bit of connectivity issues I had to connect and disconnect, but um, I'm well. I'm well. Good to be up in the morning. Thank you very much. Tell us a little bit, for those of us who have no idea how this works, what is developmental economics and and what do you guys actually do in that department? (laughs) So I love that question because everyone (laughs) always asks me, so why is everyone else an economist and you like saying you're a development economist? What does that mean? So I always give the simple explanation, uh, Gareth, that uh, mainstream economics is uh, very theoretical on certain neoclassical and monetarist uh, framework. 
I always used to ask the question at Varsity as to, okay, so I was at UCT and we did um, a course called uh, Political Economy. That's what changed my whole life. Um, and I began to understand that there are major disparities between um, rich countries, poor countries, haves and have-nots. And, and I remember a course I did called... Uh, international trade and bargaining and i represented a country called nicaragua so i never knew this country existed i had to represent it in a kind of an international um setup of what we call the wto in uh, trade and bargaining and uh, economics three um i was an economics major and i saw the disparities there was like a chinese block there with like i don't know 60 delegates out of the entire uh, ecos three class then there was the us which had like the major block then there was Africa, which was disjointed, and South, the global South. And then there was this one country called Nicaragua. And I was like, <laughs> what do you even vote for? Because you are irrelevant. <laughs> and I was like, so the question that came to my mind is, what then happens when you start talking economics with the aim of helping countries like Nicaragua? You know, South Africa is slightly bigger because we seen as more relevant in terms of middle income, but lower to middle income to your least developed economies. Why are we not looking at economic theory and economics that talks to improving inequality, improving access, improving outcomes for output and improving the distribution of wealth? The levels of inequality globally right now are shocking and they're getting worse. So all these things for me talk to how you use economics for furthering these development goals rather than simply just churning out economists that are not necessarily fundamentally concerned about redistribution and equality. So I'm well, concerned but, about but those re- things redist- as well. Redistribution, as redistribution and equality sound to me like, um, like those are – this is a certain kind of theory and ideology rather than a real study of economics because this obsession worldwide with the Gini coefficient and with economic inequality seems to not have any solutions proposed, but rather to just, you know, hate on people who have more than you. It's like living next door to a billionaire and imagining that that affects your life in some way. That's not a, it's not a, I want to change that. It's not a, it's not an ideology. It's um, rooted in economic theory. So if you, there's a paper I wrote uh, with Prof Swilling, and what you've seen over time is a change in the kind of theoretical frameworks that are being used in economics right now. Yeah, but when, so when you, you use, sorry, time, I, I don't mean to be argumentative at the start of our discussion, but that's kind of how I no, am. No, no, go for it. Be argumentative. <laughs> when, I have no we, issue. I'll we, explain my points. When we prioritize the, the, the words redistribution or inequality in, in the preamble Absolutely. to this discussion, what we're really doing is proposing a political ideology and theory. This is not something new. This is This goes all the way back to Marx and Engels. No. So for me, I don't agree with that. It's not, I don't want us to get it trapped into politics, right? Uh, from an economic perspective, there's what is called heterodox economics. And uh, there's also a change in mainstream economics, primarily moving from economic theory, from your neoclassical theory to your monetarist theory, uh, to where we are now. There's been a lot of discussion um, from an economic theory perspective uh, to look at what type of economic frameworks and economic modeling do we have and what are the outcomes? Of course, you have your hardcore, uh, I'd say, 
ideologically, you wouldn't necessarily say neoclassical uh, economic theory is an ideological position. It's actually a mainstream and it's accepted as the norm. So, right? so anyone who I, is I, I to a differing view is seen as left leaning and it yeah. becomes an ideological issue or discussion, which is not necessarily but, necessary. You know, I mean, so it doesn't always have to be that if you have an alternative economic thought process and framework from which you come from, that it leans to well, an ideological disposition rather than a theoretical one. That's that, my contention with what you're pointing. Sure, and Gabby's um, saying, but, but if it quacks like a duck and it walks like a duck, it's a duck. And to talk about heterodox <laughs> versus you know the orthodox <laughs> position is just to say we're different, but actually this is not terribly different. And surely economics comes down to rands and cents and supply and demand and all the theory in the world that you guys at universities throw into into you know uh, thesis and, and, and master's dissertations and so on. All of that is good and well, but aren't you guys just circling the wagons and not particularly doing anything useful when it comes to this stuff because actually economics which is, stuff which stuff tell well, me which stuff you well, about. when you pe- say not doing anything useful you're, you're basically what that you may be do, you may be doing the work that the politicians are too stupid to do but it's it's basically politics in economics that's what it is <laughs> no politics. isn't it i mean am i being economics. am i am i being so, very superficial I think it's much broader than that. So we, we, we need to look at the underlying economic theory. So you find that um, some of the issues that you're raising, you, you're correct to say that we've got to look at the variables, the measurable variables. I think when you talk about supply and demand, mm. um, these are some of the economic indicators that are usually referred to. Um, but there's a deeper question in that the fundamental basis for most economic discussions is framed in an ideological position. Uh-huh. Um, so for an example, so for an example, if you're talking about um, South Africa and if you're talking about the global West, they have maybe a different type of ideological position to some of your South American type of counterpart to the Chinese. However, that does not mean to say some of the fundamentals are not comparable, the macroeconomic variables are not comparable. Mm. It's just that the way in which they decide to plan economically and manage their economy is slightly different and has different outcomes, and they have primarily different goals and visions. And that's critical for us to to note. I think that uh, what we've seen, I use the U.S. as an example, how the U.S. as a model economy and the biggest economy globally, even even now they remain uh, the biggest economy globally, since the 40s world war post war world war two uh, you see that they've really been the mainstream type driving the type of economic policy across the globe mm-hmm. and you see that from a neoliberal perspective they had the keynesian um, economic framework where they use the government they use the, the the government fiscus to develop the post world war economy they came up with the reconstruction plan for the world the marshall plan that everyone then adopted they came up with the bretton woods institutions and this was enabling the development of their own economies after the world war um, at that time it was needed because they were completely obliterated. We would know this, of course, and they were shattered. And then we saw a different yeah, I mean, type of economy of us, rising. Yeah, in all the of us 70s. would all of us would be speaking German if if they hadn't. So, <laughs> so that's a good thing. <laughs> exactly. So, and then you saw a kind of a change in the seventies to your neoliberalism. Remember, from so from the post forties, the the state was quite interventionist. It was very much involved in the reconstruction and development program of most OECD economies. Yeah. And then you saw now um, 
the growth happening, you saw the gains of the Marshall Plan and the investment into um, public spending, um, and, and, and you saw monetary policy taking the fall. Well, the new, um, the new, deal, the was new deal was obviously all of that as well. <laughs> yeah, so this is where we we would probably reference the debt to GDP and the focus around yeah. um, and that. But this was in the 70s, so it's all about phasing. And then you saw the financialization in the 80s and the 90s mm-hmm. of most global economies, the East Asians coming to the fore. And you saw the crash of the Asian crises and what the world did. This is back in the 90s. Yeah. And then we saw again in 2009 the financial recession. And again, the state then intervened I'm- to drive economic development. So you saw that there were times in the economy where there were different type of economic theory that were at the fore, but yeah. you saw the development no, of economic I, I, theory I, I to develop economies. I mean, I, I don't want you and I to give everybody a history lesson. You're, you're obviously much more well-versed in this stuff than I could ever be, but I, I think that's it's important to have that as a background. My point is just that... But it's yes. a good place to start. Yeah, I mean, listen, yes. cavemen, W saying cavemen used to trade. Uh, they knew that one goat was worth 10 pieces of wood, and they didn't need any ideology or theory to back that up, and I think most human beings... No, but you took me there, Gareth. You took I me know. to the... Hey, you're the one who started with ideology, so I'm going there. You can take me where you want. I'll, I'll keep quiet on that. All right. Take me where you want. Right. I'm going. Here's where I really think that, that people like you at universities in South Africa can do us an enormous service because you can help us to understand things that require research, development, discussion, um, expansion, where we need to think of applying new ways of considering economic theory to our current situation, because we're in a hole. So I want to know from you, first of all, what do you make of the current situation in South Africa's economy? How do you analyze and understand that? How can you explain it to, to you know, street people like me? And second of all, what do you think we can start doing immediately to rectify the obviously not good situation that we're in? Okay. Thank you for that question. I think um, really, I think the the real analysis, I would have to be very blunt and frank. I've done quite a few discussions and I think um, where I've said that the current status of the economy, number one, is not as a result of COVID. I think that's number one. Uh, COVID is one of the reasons why we are where we are. Um, It has worsened um, the situation currently, but it hasn't been the reason for where we are. Uh, Where South Africa is, is that more than 50% of South Africans are in poverty. Uh, Where South Africa is, is we're leading with inequality globally in the world. So that means redistribution isn't happening. So you're finding that the bottom 40% earn 8.3% of our wealth and income in South Africa. And you're finding that the top 10% of South Africa's population, and there's a racial disparity as well. It's largely the white population in that top 10% is owning 90% of the wealth. So where South Africa is, is where we're sitting with 42.6% unemployment levels broadly. Uh, we talked, I like to use discouraged, more than 3 million discouraged work seekers are not included. Uh, where South Africa is, we contracting when we look at um, our industrial contribution or manufacturing value add as a proportion of GDP. And so the resulting outcome of this is that you're seeing a contracting ability of companies and the economy to really employ our people. That's why we're seeing uh, that the employment intensity is so low in South Africa is that we've had what we call a services-led growth path. Um, so if you look at various variables, just around context, if you look at now, high-level market cap, we'd say banking, financial sector, 
Oh, here we go again with the internet. Sorry, Dubby saying you're just going to have to repeat that. Give me a second. Contribution of that sector to GDP. A lot of it is not necessarily going into productive investments, which is what was desperately needed in this country, so that you can actually start to produce and have more capacity coming from both your industry and your agriculture. Contribution coming from agriculture is at 1% in South Africa. Some provinces are slightly higher. Uh, it's argued that because of the multiplier effect, i.e. employment, i.e. buying from other subsectors and contributing, it can be as up to 10%. But it really is very low, given the level of unemployment we have and given the land and the natural resources that South Africa has, including mining, the contribution is less than 5% and it's dropped from the 50s or 60s to the level we see it now. Gross fixed capital formation is a variable that people rarely talk to. And that talks to the level of investment or reinvestment into capital, land, machinery, equipment, into the real economy. And we're seeing as a proportion of GDP, that's really been going downward as a proportion of GDP. You compare it to other countries, China, Turkey, uh, countries that are similar to South Africa as emerging markets, and we're really at the bottom of that rank. If you look at other variables, not just GFCF, but you look at investment, we've been unable to really attract uh, capital inflows in the form of investment FDI into South Africa. And that speaks to, despite the policies we've had over time, we've been unable to really make sure that that really yields investment inflows. And that speaks to uh, probably that we're not doing sufficient work in terms of uh, translating our economic policies to real deliverables. Uh, the one other variable that I want to focus on probably um, that is very, very uh, important for optimizing um, our output is besides looking at government debt, which everyone uh, ha has very well knowledge of because that's all we talk about, debt to GDP. We in South Africa are not talking sufficiently about how to make sure that our economic growth is driven by redistribution. Okay, right? what, what do you, so but, we, just explain to me, what do you mean by redistribution? What does that actually mean? I'll explain it. So I'll explain. So let me start with the economic growth. So usually in countries, uh, how you measure economic growth, just to unpack it, growth is measured by four indices. In South Africa, you have consumption, where you and I, households, businesses, the government, they consume goods and services and they contribute to output, economic output. You and I offer our services, um, our, way, our labor and all those type of things to produce these services and they translate it into output. Okay, that's one. Then the second is investment coming in from both your global and your uh, domestic partners, investing into companies, investing in the stock exchange, but also investing into productive investment like manufacturing, literally mm -hmm. buying land. Mm -hmm. If Amazon comes, they buy land, they need a site, they need a warehouse to put right. things, they need people and so forth. So that's investment and that's why FDI is good. Um, then you also have got to look at your, uh, what we'd call your net exports. That deals with trade. So how much are you trading? Are you sending more out than you're sending in, right? Are you uh, able to produce goods and sell them uh, and, and gain the benefits of what we call competitive advantage? Right. Uh, and so that talks to your trade. And the last is the government expenditure. They also contribute to this growth. Now, where the redistribution happens is on the part of household income. How much of your population have what level of income decile? In South Africa, if you look at that consumption number, we know that the biggest concentration is biracial and also we know that the middle income is debt driven. Saab does a lot of research on how household debt to income levels are. So our people's growth in terms of consumption is not driven by growth in manufacturing or productivity or hmm. SMMEs. It's driven by consumption underpinned by debt. 
Right. That's a problem. So, so, so if when you, you want redistribution, you've got to have more of your people going into the middle income, to simply put it. Right. You well, have to have more of your people going I to mean, middle we've, income. We've you've been, got to see more of your people having high income level, right? More black South Africans specifically we've been, we've because been, of the racial disparities with income inequality. But South Africa has been so trem- we can go into the detail there. But South I think Africa has been tremendously that. successful in in adding to the the black middle class over the last twenty years. It's been probably some of the fastest growth in any demographic in the world in respect to that. So, I mean, that's that's an impressive thing that we should take stock of. We are moving in the right direction. I mean, you know, when we talk about redistribution, I do get a little nervous because. You know, there have been people in the past, Mao's great leap forward or, you know, Hitler's <laughs> idea of the night where you go and take all the Jews' shops and you destroy their possessions and send them no, off to camps. No, but when, you know, when, when economic theorists talk like this, they talk about it like no, it's no, no, just no. a thing that happens and it's on paper. But in, in real life, these things happen a little more uh, in, 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 in a much more ugly way. Africa. So we, we obviously had quite a high growth and that's what, you know, that's what emerging markets are about. Is everything in my right? Because we, we come from zero. I like and so to have a high growth at the... <laughs> yeah, I like this point that Gareth makes, Puti, on the issue of redistribution in the middle income or the middle class. So what is interesting about the black middle class is that what is black middle class South Africa? And I found this interesting. There's research done by the UCT. I forgot the marketing unit there. But I, mm. I just remember off the top of my head, they talk about people owning a microwave, a dishwasher. <laughs> it's like that's what it means. to. I, I want to break it down. That's what it means when we're talking about the middle class. What other countries talk about when they talk middle class is asset ownership. Uh, Singapore was very clear that what redistribution meant, uh, because they have a similar type of history to South Africa from a racial perspective, was that they had to make sure that the minor, the majority who were not necessarily able to access assets were able to also participate in the redistribution of assets in the long term and own assets. So I think one of the things we need to look for beyond owning things that have no value in terms of long-term growth and acquisition of debt when you have no assets, capital, uh, land, and uh, labor we all have, but without assets, you cannot accrue rental, you cannot accrue income on those things. You simply paid a wage. So I think it's important for us to differentiate uh, between what is meant by South Africa's black middle class. So one can be happy, one can say we've done a lot, but the problem what you find with the black middle income is that they are, they are salary away from poverty. Because they don't have investments, well, they don't have, they don't have, yeah, they don't have investments, they don't have assets, they don't have wealth in the sense of they don't have inheritance or trust. So if they don't get that yeah, salary but then, but and then they, are, uh, they yeah. are dispensed because of loss of that wage or income. That's the case for, for okay. probably most South Africans. I mean, I, I don't think there are that many wealthy people in this country, even if we took away everything that the very, very wealthy in South Africa had and we redistributed it, it wouldn't necessarily raise the, the baseline for the majority of us. I mean, most people are about one salary away from being in poverty in South Africa, particularly in our current economic conditions and post-COVID. So how do we fix this in practical terms? Is it a policy issue from government? Is it something that we can do to start stimulating the economy outside of government? Because everybody keeps telling us that, you know, it's the SMMEs, but this is not the most favorable environment. And you as an economist would be able to explain why for SMMEs. That's why a lot of brilliant people are rather taking their ideas and their, frankly, their capital out of the country to places where it can grow faster. So I think there's a lot of points that you've raised. Uh, let me start with the last one. 
what can we do to get out of this, right? Mm. I think that, um, is it policy? I think that policy does definitely play an important role. What South Africans, you'd hear in a lot of the discourse that's happening right now is that a lot of people will say, there's policy fatigue, we're tired of coming up with new plans, let's implement. The problem is if you look historically at South Africa's economic policies, and I'll give you some of the facts uh, in that we first had uh, what we call the RDP, right? Um, the RDP, if you look at it from an average growth rate perspective, uh, looking at uh, South Africa's economic growth over time, we were able to see an average growth of around, um, I think it's around 3.2% with the RDP. That was the first economic policy South Africa had. That led to redistribution and some of the um, economic growth gains we saw right after post-democracy. But then we moved to what we call the Askisa or the Gypsa. What happened there was that the outcomes, and I want to focus on the outcomes of the economic policy. They then had improved outcomes, and this was towards late 90s, 2000 and four, five, six, that's where you had the best growth in South Africa, 5.6%. But also you saw more people being employed and unemployment was at its lowest there. I think unemployment was at around 22% then. And this is the narrow definition. Uh, the, the broad definition was still over the... 30%. But this is the best unemployment South Africa has had, which is an anomaly because most countries have crises unemployment when it starts to peak over 10%. We have doubled that and we are okay with that. But then we move to uh, worsening economic output with the new growth path, particularly with the NDP. So what you see with the economic policy outcomes where people, I want to start with policy because it's very critical we understand that if we continue with these economic policies, they have been implemented. Maybe not uh, 200 or optimal levels, but the economic management of the country has been running with economic policies in place, and the outcomes haven't yielded good outcomes, whether it's from mm -hmm. growth, whether it's from uh, unemployment perspective, inequality. So policy is something that we need to focus on, and policy improvement I will take it to say, how do we change the structure of the South African economy? You spoke about SMMEs. What I would say is the key recommendation, and I always talk about how we need to enhance what I call economic productivity. So two things. We've got to look at how we make sure that we've got manufacturing as a value add, increasing as an output. That'll help SMMEs. That'll help all the value chain. That'll help uh, all the uh, municipalities that are not collecting rates because people are not working. There's no economic activity. People are reliant on government, particularly in these nodes where there were no economic uh, substructure set up or economic infrastructure in the former Bantustan. So you've got to look at new ways to boost economic activity, right? So investing in, in, in productive investment and investing in manufacturing as a value add. So that talks to agricultural person. Simplified is like the things that we eat in our house, in our homes. Who's making it? We import most of those goods, right? We import the things you eat. If you woke up and you had coffee, did any of that come from South Africa? It's probably imported. If any of you woke up had tea, maybe the rooibos is made here, but the milk uh, not the milk, but the, the other non-agricultural food stuff that is not perishable well, I, is I, likely to have been imported. So this is where you've got to focus on. And this is where most countries that started to change their economic structures focused on is changing the contribution the, of manufacturing value add as a proportion. So saying, that's my first surely, recommendation. Surely the, the first recommendation, and I know Pumi feels strongly about this too because she's also a small business owner, uh, Pum's you and I both agree that the first thing we need is less government in the economy, not more. We want to have less uh, people interfering in our businesses so that we can get by with less regulation. I mean, poor Pumi has been waiting for 
months now to try and get phone lines put in and to try and get all the red tape around her registration of a new office and all that kind of thing sorted out. And this is all, I mean, in the case of the the service provider for Internet, that's a separate one, obviously. That's a private company. But so much of the stuff, it's hard to start a business. If you have a good idea and you live in a township, there is regulation, there is red tape, there is confusion, there is bureaucracy around being able to do all of the stuff that you've got to do. When all you want to do, to go back to my example, is trade 10, you know, pieces of wood for one goat. And we don't need a minister of finance or SARS or the economic cluster involved in our lives to do that. In fact, the less they have to do with it, the better. <laughs> you don't like the minister of finance. No, I don't mind him at all. I, I, I actually have no problem with him. But I think governments in general are the worst way to run anything without adding huge costs to, to, to that transaction. In fact, what, what you and I and Dabi Singh can do is we can trade together and it shouldn't have anything to do with government in an ideal world. So here's the thing. The, the thing is that in an ideal world, most people think that government intervention is what I call interference. It I is. think this is what, what, what I'm I hearing would argue in this. I would argue in this country, it, particularly it is, because <laughs> we know that there's graft and there's huge collusion between big business and, and government. We know that tender irregularity is a massive part of that. In fact, we've got the State Capture Commission going on at the moment, investigating just how in cahoots big business and government have been over the years. So I want to take us back a little bit. So the first point that you made was on the government role in economics and economic policy, that they should not necessarily be involved. So what I would say is that the state, in terms of how it intervenes, is critical. And I think Mm. for me, that's what we need to focus on. The state should be, we talk about the state creating an enabling environment, but the question is for who? So the state economic policy right now has created an enabling environment for multinationals. So that's why the SMME. No, they haven't. They've been playing. They've been, they've been playing an enabling role in in helping their friends score tenders and make millions and buy <laughs> bling cars. That's what they've been doing. No, no, no. You don't, you're talking something different. I'm talking economic policy. So I'm talking economic policy. Which, in terms of which what multi which doing. multinationals have and, been investing on mass in the last five years? None. I I I wouldn't say that's none, what, but. How you measure it is as a proportion of GDP. So you can say that it's actually been declining. So Correct. also you can look at the investment levels. So that puts that paid to your argument there. I mean, that's 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 a, not an argument then. No, oh, I'm, not Karen, hold on. <laughs> no, I'm not saying it's going up. So I'm saying there is a problem with the low investment. Because like for example, Standard Bank, the Chinese have invested we have to deal with some of the structural problems South Africa has. So what you are referring to about the red tape, the red tape, the easing of business, this is critical, right? We don't want SMMEs to be struggling because they must go register and it takes 30 days with SARS to get a clearance on something. We don't want SMMEs to be struggling to get a phone line. By the way, phone lines are not managed by government, it's managed by telecom, but I'm not sure exactly which phone line is managed by government. But there's some of these service providers that are actually not necessarily government, but uh, the issues of regulation right if you have to comply if you're in a mining sector you need a paper by some authority to give you a health inspection but they take six weeks to give you that it hinders the ability of government to actually enable you so from the perspective of efficiency and the capacity of the state 
the Department of Labor, the departments that enable uh, companies and also uh, your SMMEs to get what they need from a regulatory perspective. The state isn't doing well. No one can defend this, particularly in many of the subsectors where people are crying for uh, authorization for response rates, you know, for some of the regulatory uh, improvements. So there's a lot of, th this is what we call microeconomic reform. Microeconomic reform lessens your hindering, what we call stumbling blocks or inhibitors to entering into sectors. I mean, there's a lot of applications for some subsectors. If it's gonna take the government uh, official in a mineral and energy 10 weeks, 20, uh, you know, a month, two months to get back to you, just an email, that's inefficient, right? It costs you money. It costs you inability. You might lose a business deal and so forth because of the time. So you are spot on there. Microeconomic reforms of making sure the cost of doing business is reduced is very critical. But I think the role of the state, I want to take us back. The state has intervened globally to save nations' economies, to help SMMEs, to make sure that the inequality and the and, 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 and the severity of underdevelopment is dealt with. So the question is, is the state able to do that efficiently? If not, fix that. But the state has always had a role. The state has a role in, in the first world economies. If you look at agriculture in Europe, if you look at the, the, the example that's usually made is that a cow, uh, it's almost like 70% of the cow is fed by subsidies. Right. And then they export the rest of that in agriculture is used as an example to say how much the state is intervening in agriculture and agricultural processing in Europe is massive. But they're able then to reduce their cost and compete with everyone else because the state is subsidizing, you know, the Europeans. Yeah. So it's not the same in Africa because we don't have that budget. Right. So it's, you have to compete now I'm gonna, with them. I'm going to bring Pumi in. I'm, I'm going to bring Pumi no, in. I think that's. Yeah, go the, ahead, the thing about it, though, um, and saying is not so much that there is a, a failing of policy, but there is a failing of, of interconnectedness. So our government tends to work in, in silos, right? So the economic policy might be sound in some <laughs> sectors of it, but where the Department of Labor and all of the enabling factors, or even education, I mean, when I looked at um, some of the stuff that that you wanted to talk about today, and I hope we get to that as well. You you talk about kind of we have to we have to invest more in productive uh, parts of the economy, but the education sector is what lets us down there. You know because you need a particular level of skills and types of skills that that we currently yeah. don't have. We don't have those skills, you know, because we have not concentrated on those skills. I saw a couple of days ago um, a VC at one of the universities talking about the number of PhDs Africa needs to produce. And I'm kind of going, eh, yeah, but we also, you know, PhDs are a particular type of skill set. And the kinds of things we need now is more doers and not more thinkers. So, and, and that's why I'm saying, you, you know, we don't have the, the circle doesn't work uh, well with each other. Putin, we need, uh, this thing you're talking about is coordination. So any economy, what they do, they produce the people that is needed to make whatever your, your strategy is happen. So you've got to, for an example, if you're saying you're industrializing, if you're saying you want to create more productive sectors in the economy, if you're saying you want to empower SMMEs and you want to produce more things instead of importing, simple thing, you've got to have artisans. You've got to have carpenters. You've got to have... A, 
This, uh, again, I'm sorry to interrupt. This sounds a lot like central planning. And central planning are two different things. But your, your planning has got to work in sync. You can't have Department of Labor and Department of Employment and Labor not speaking and education, not speaking to the economic growth target and economic goals of the country. Those two should be working in synergy. So the labor market construct, which is really what we have in South Africa, is that the outcome on the labor market is not we have a mismatch of the labor, the skills produced, and the demand. Mm. Right now, we need more people that use their hands. We need and our desperate need of plumbers, as an example. ESCOM is ESCOM in, in terms of if you look at the, 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 the skills, electricians, yeah. engineers. We are importing those skills. We don't have enough in South Africa. We used to because the technical space was very strong, i.e. technical, uh, what they used to call universities of They've now called them as technology, University of Technology, Technicons. The Tibet colleges, before they were Tibet colleges, were FET colleges, but even before, they used to send tradesmen and people to do trades tests at different places where they produce boilermakers, artisans, carpenters. It used to be a skill where people can develop families, grow themselves, have their own enterprises, but and we look another, down on those things Another now, example, and we don't focus on them the, the closure, to grow our economy. So the, closure of those, the, the closure of those technical colleges is another example, I would say, of government interfering in the wrong way, rather than the right way by leaving people alone. You know, if they'd, if they'd left those colleges to operate, we'd probably pr- be producing those skilled people right now. But no, no, I agree with it was you, a Gareth, policy then. decision. I can't fight you, know? you then. That's what I completely concur, to say that if we are really we're on an industrialization path, we've got, well, now they're talking about re, reinvigorating the teacher training colleges, yeah. reinvigorating the Tibet colleges, but they've, it's going to take a while to now redo that. But it's critical that we do it because we can't keep uh, having this mismatch where Mm. we're churning out people into the economy. Remember what's happening. Every year, a million plus people enter the labor market having left the uh, schooling or uh, post-schooling phase. Of those, 6% go to Tibet colleges, right? 7% go to universities. The question is what happens to the rest? Well, I think, I think this is, this is a great place for us to bring in the discussion around something which is, is fermenting across the country and does every year at this time. And that is university politics. And unfortunately, we have so many people in South Africa who are desperate. I interviewed Mkabod Lamini yesterday on my, on my TV show. And he explained to me when he was heading up fees must fall, uh, in 2015 and 16, what their, their purpose was then and how, how many South Africans, particularly young black South Africans, see universities the only way out of poverty. And we have a problem because we have a lack of capacity at our universities in order to enroll all these people. We also aren't necessarily producing those skills that Pumi was talking about earlier. And we don't have as much money as we need in many of these places to be able to finance this. Now, last week, interestingly enough, I had uh, Franz Cronier from the IRR on, and he explained that we actually do have enough money. It wouldn't cost us that much to make tertiary education free. And he says that would really help a lot of people to enter the, the middle class we started talking about earlier. What do you guys see, Pums and, and uh, Dabi saying? what do you see as the solution to the current crisis in education? And, and this is where government does have a very big role. We know that you know, government subsidizes uh, just about everyone who goes to university. And in many cases, thanks to NISFAS, is able to pay for a few of them in totality. But there are still gaps that need filling. So what do you think of that? 
Okay, so I think that uh, I concur with, I don't know who the speaker was that came in to say, that, is there enough? Um, yeah, there's definitely sufficient. I think the question um, that that is, a, is, is very much important for optimizing um, education outcomes in South Africa is that we've got to agree and accept the fundamental principle is that poverty is lessened by significant levels if our people are educated. I think that poverty report, I can uh, turn some numbers, they, they, they cite that poverty is reduced Literally, I think those in poverty usually have very low level of education. I think it's over 50%, those who have not finished their post-matric qualification. Those who have finished post-matric qualification and have a university or equivalent mm. uh, have less than 10%. It's a single digit. It's a single digit level of poverty. So you find it's around 8 or 9%, but it, it more than goes over 60% where you have less than a post-metric qualification. So that talks to exactly what you're saying, that if you do not educate our people, why is education important? It enables you to translate output, or it enables you to take factors of production and translate them to output. Someone who has gone to school is able to say, okay, maybe I don't have a job now, but what can I do? in the interim, or I can have an idea and translate that idea into some kind of uh, innovation. So I think, number one, you're spot on that we definitely need to finance education. There is sufficient budget for that. I think the issue is that, is there a will? So what's happening right now in the country is austerity. We're seeing a reduction across the board of over 600 billion in terms of the budget, the budget cuts that we're speaking about since uh, three years ago. But I think more so from the medium term budget policy statement in October, but also now in the February statement, we're seeing austerity. There's what is called reprioritization. So instead of increasing money to public expenditure, we're seeing a reduction, particularly across your uh, what we call, they call it uh, learning um, outcomes, your health your education, uh, your social uh, expenditure is being drastically reduced. Why? So that the budget surplus can be met in the next three to five years, right? So this is part and parcel of why the state is cutting expenditure drastically. And there's a lot of opposition to this because in a time of recession, a time of crisis, what you want to do is pump money into the economy to kickstart getting out of a recession quicker, but also to kickstart economic activity because all the other subsectors I spoke about earlier, CIG, or CINX are contracting, and the only way to stimulate economic activity is through the government fiscus. That is a temporary measure, though, and it's not a long-term measure. So there's a lot of discussion around this and a lot of mm. argument. But for now, economic policy that the government has chosen is to cut. Yeah, they well, chosen uh, some, 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 of us, some of us would say cut even more. Although, but what we're also seeing, I think that the, the re that is simply a result of the fact that there's no more thinking happening in our government. I think that they, they, they have their backs against the wall. They have hmm. too many f fires to fight. And so there's, there's no more creative solutions kind of no, we, thinking. So they, must, they must call us. There are people with ideas. There are people who are still There saying, are many people with something. ideas. Let's do this. Let's approach it this way. We've written a paper. This paper that I refer to is called New Wine into New Wine Skin, an alternative economic strategy for this reconstruction of South Africa's economy. I wrote this with Prof Swilling, and there were other economists, young economists that were part of the workshops that we had and that participated in this process. We are clear to say there are things. Uh, Gareth asked the critical question, what should be done, 
right? There are several initiatives that you can do immediately, long-term, short-term. But there are things that can be done immediately uh, to change Absolutely. the growth path of South Africa. There are people who have done right. research who are still looking at ways just to gonna, intervene. I'm gonna but bring I us do back. want to encourage us to say it's not all doom and gloom. I do have hope. That's also a theory. I have plenty of hope. <laughs> this is one of the things. And, and I love the fact that you think there are people out there who, who have the thinking, who want yeah. to implement it. And this is exactly my point, is that our, unfortunately, the people in our governing system right now mm. have, yeah, have so many... Statement. Yeah, they have so many fires to fight. And, you know, I'll, I'll, you spoke about Asgisa earlier, right? So Joel mm. Nechitenze, who was one of the critical members of, of, of welding that policy in place. He's he a policy is, machine. <laughs> he, is, he is. He is. And we yeah. love him for that, right? He was able yeah, to, yeah. for a very long time, drive a lot of the policies that were coming out of our government. But now mm. he's writing open letters. In yeah. the Daily Maverick, complaining about the REC. Well, because this is what I'm saying. Because Yo, because, because I'm, I'm just, they're I'm not working. Because I'm afraid, <laughs> I, and this is a very good indication. Jordan Echetenza, since you brought him up, is a perfect example of precisely my point that all we've got left in government now are a bunch of grifters, and unfortunately. You could talk about all of this in, in theoretical terms, and it's very convenient for you guys at the universities to do this because government, <laughs> government, government can't be the arsonist. Go, government can't be the arsonist and the firefighter. Dabi saying you can't, you can't. Dabi, once... I'm going to phone you. I've, I've, listen, I've, I've, I, 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 listen, Gav, I agree that we've got to improve the capacity of the state. I will say that. No, I'd I say, say no, no, I don't. I'm we've very happy. No, Dabi saying put performance management systems in place. You, we've got to hold the performance agreements of ministers. The president no, must hold no, 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 uh, ministers. No, you, you misread me. To do all those things. You miss. You misread me. I like. I like. World. I like That's that our government. Wife. I like that our government are useless. I don't trust them. If they were any better yeah. at their job, I think they would be much more dangerous. No, if they were better at their job, if if we had a better thinking government, we'd be in a far better position, Gareth. Because they are useless, we are in the state that no, we are. No, 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 you guys are making no, big statements. Yeah, it, 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 it because the, so Ntabi, you talk about the fact that the policies that they've got in place and the policies that they they have made work are policies that work better for multinationals than for South Africans. That's exactly the point. If they were better at it, if they were thinking in big term and they were thinking more about the people of South Africa, they would have better policies that work for the people yeah, of I, South Africa. I, can, can, I, can I? No, can I? Can I? Can yes. I introduce something to the discussion, if you'll allow it. me? Mm -hmm. There's something I want to propose that maybe just to, to look at it differently. So South Africa has quite a unique uh, uh, opportunity, I'll put it like that, from, from what you're talking about, the capacity of the state, um, the capacity of the economic cluster. South Africa does have, I believe, uh, economic muscle, right? Uh, economic muscle, and I explain why I say that. We've got... Uh, compounded annual growth rate that is the fastest one of the fastest in the in the, in the capital markets south africa's pension funds we uh, privatized our pension fund so what we did is we set up what we call the government employee pension fund amalgamated several pension funds uh, after 1994 around 90 in the late 90s created this pic uh, that we 
manages the GPF, mm-hmm. which is the Government Employee Pension Fund. We're currently have more than four trillion alone in the GPF, for, for now, which is being managed for now, by the because we yeah, know that governments have got no, their eyes that on that. That money is they've got it. I want to get oh, really? tell you that. You think so? The, the perception that's been created is is is, is that. The few unlisted, uh, the few unlisted instruments that have been misused, become the talk of the town, and that's all that's focused. Mm. But we have more than eight trillion in the capital market surplus that we're not talking about. Now, here's where I think there's an opportunity. South Africa has strong uh, technocrats at Treasury. South Africa has capabilities with what we call uh, triple Ps. South Africa has capabilities with developing infrastructure. We have engineers in South Africa that develop infrastructure all the way to Cairo from here to the from the Cape. No, we you must said use we have to import engineers. Funds. We must use our pension funds more adequately and more productively to develop the country. Who's we? we because have because and Dabi saying that need to be enhanced to do, do you that. Mean we, and I think that's where we need to discuss. When you that's say, one of my recommendations. Hold on. When you say we, when, when you say we must uh, utilize these pension yep. funds better, the last thing we want is to is to open the doors to Treasury to run that. It sounds like that's what you're you're advocating here. These are precisely no, 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 the no. people who've mismanaged no. us into the yep. hole we're in. If you take people's hard earned pensions, that's not government's money that's money that people in employment in south africa have saved themselves that's private money you can't let the government use that money i'm terribly sorry so let me you you miss i didn't say government so i want to explain i'm saying use it for productive investment who you let me explain what i mean this doesn't mean giving it to government. So Ooh. several countries in the world, con- concluding OECD economies, they create what is called an infrastructure asset class. This is not taking money, giving it to government. It's taking it to infrastructure via bonds. It's taking it to infrastructure via instruments in the unlisted equity, mm-hmm. unlisted bond market, and also your fixed income security market. And you see various funds across the world have massive allocations uh, in the UK, in the US, in Canada, in Portugal. These countries don't have the type of development problems and challenges South Africa has. But we have sophisticated capital markets like them, but we don't deal with our development problems using the tools they use. Our, this is what I this find is surprising. Great. This is great so in theory. South Africa our, can. Our government, we have the biggest pension fund saying, globally, one of them. I'm sorry. And we are not using it this Forget is government. This is not no, government. no, no. But this is infrastructure th- allocation there, there is, into bonds. This is not. Bonds, this is not. This is not news. So don't talk government. Government is okay. not the one who's going to take. The, this but money. this is this is what you're talking about is great on paper. But here we have a, we actually have reports in the news of the fact that they're eyeing this money in order to bail out ESCOM. Now, is that the kind of infrastructure project that you're talking about? Because we know how those have failed. Look at Kusile. So exactly. So the question is. If you're going to point out, this is the problem we have in this discussion, is exactly this. If we're going to say, let's park this discussion because ESCOM is being discussed as a potential. I don't know what the discussions around ESCOM are. What I know is that uh, the, the what I call CPIBP in Canada uses up to 7% of their total pension fund, which is equivalent to GPF, to allocate to infrastructure. This is not only energy. Uh, superannuation New Zealand, 9.9% to, uh, to infrastructure. I, I, I'm taking different countries. Omar is in Canada, 
15% to infrastructure assets. These are first world economies. They don't need infrastructure like us. If you let's park ESCOM because ESCOM is a unique situation. You can't just park if we ESCOM. Discuss any We're talking other infrastructure. I'm not talking hundreds I want of us billions. To remove ESCOM I mean, it's, you can't just it ignore it. Conversation to another. I want us to remove it, Gareth. I want us to talk about other infrastructure that can be developed. There's ports. There's uh, road infrastructure. Uh, I'm not talking social infra- infrastructure. I'm talking ICT telecoms. Infrastructure that have payoffs. Infrastructure that have uh, capital but- inflows. Infrastructure that have what we call returns. These need to be prioritized. And that's why we, we, we excited some of us when we hear about Regulation 28. But we've been hearing about it for the last two to three years. Nothing has been done. But I think if yep, we can correctly usual. articulate that into infrastructure allocation, you know, bond allocation, viable, viable projects. Many countries are doing it. Let's not be scared to do what other countries are using to develop themselves. Countries are not going to invest if we are not willing to invest in our own economy. All right. And then we have what, what we call a crowding in. And they do this in first world economies. And yet African economies are scared. And we want other people to come and solve our problems. It's not going to happen. But solve then, your but, own problems. You know, if, if we were if we were if we were Canada and New Zealand, we wouldn't need developmental econ- economics, would we? I mean, this is the whole point. I, I think that's why we need to do these things. I don't know. Garrett, I mean, listen, because we are not Canada <laughs> and New Zealand. Let me, if they are even doing them, then me, they don't need them. Let me but finish they are off. Further improving the lives of their people yeah, and putting more sure. infrastructure. They also have zero. They also have zero corruption. So let's just talk about this quickly because we've got to wrap this up. I think if lockdown taught okay. us anything. It is that the informal economy and that people who are just trading with each other, whether it's bootlegging alcohol or fake cigarettes or whatever, that is the only way we could save South Africa's economy, not with government and with government. Your faith in the government is just an extraordinary thing. And Dubby's saying it's almost naive. It's beautiful, but it's naive. Pumi and I have dealt no, with. No, no, I believe in a mix. Remember, you no, started the discussion no. by lashing out at government. So now we've had to discuss the role of the state. I do believe in private sector participation. I believe in SMEs. I believe in industrialization. That's not government. You need enterprises to come to the fore to invest. I believe in fixed capital formation coming in and investing more. So I want to make it very clear that I don't believe the state (laughs) is necessarily the only participant in the economy. Please, Gareth, we've got to have companies. We've got to have multinationals. It's just a question of how developmental is our state and how is it able to advance and deal with the inequalities of the past? And you can't have the private sector dealing with that. You know why? Because the private sector wants profit. So the things that don't lead to profit, they're not interested in. So who's going to be interested in those things? Profit, 90% profits, profits the most honest. The majority of the population are poor. Profit, so got to have, profit got is to have the most honest motive in the world. And, and someone getting rich makes everybody around them better as well. Uh, I don't understand how uh, we could be against this. It, it's just always, unbelievable. I'm not talking about... Where's I'm not the talking evidence about, of that? I'm not where's talking... The evidence hold of on. That? I want you to show me who, who Rich is, is helping. Where's the evidence of that? Oh, Give me evidence. Well, let's just, let's just take, for example, that the greatest humanitarians in human history are the two richest men in the world right now. I mean, that, that's, just a, that's just a fact I'm pulling out of the air, of course. Anyway, fact who is... Who are those? Uh, Bill, Bill Gates... Gates and Warren Buffett have given more money to other people than any people who've ever lived before them. And that's just a fact. It's easy when you've got hundreds of billions, but none of the three of us do yet. So let's hope we can prove ourselves worthy at some point. <laughs> I, I reckon, listen, I reckon there's a lot more we've got to discuss with you and Tubby saying I love talking to you. 
And and Pumi, I'm sorry, Pums, I, I apologize. Pumi like got seven words in today. Usually she runs the burning platform. It doesn't platform. matter. No bloody ways. I think Tabi, I agree with a lot of what it is that you said, and I'm I'm definitely going to keep your number. I've got a uh, I've got a place for you in the fight. Yeah, I like this. <laughs> Listen, for having me, man. This was really fun. It was this fun, was really and it's fun. it's so good to talk these things through because. Otherwise, we come at it only with our preconceived notions. And I'm always pleased when someone on the show will argue with me because a lot of people don't. And Dubby Singh, you've really out, 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 you've outdone yourself and acquitted yourself beautifully today. So thank you very much. Thanks, man. Thanks so much, guys. Right. I appreciate very good. it. Well, that is uh, Dr. Dubby Singh Muleko. And she was our special guest on The Burning Platform today. It's brought to you by Nando's every single week. Cliffcentral.com.